how yeah. to reflect. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I try to do myself is I try to give about a minute or so after the, after the homily, and they give a little longer time after communion. Like, after the song's over, let's just sit here for a while. Yeah, yeah. The most privileged exactly. point of our week where we're one with Jesus. Let's sit here and enjoy that reality for a few minutes rather than rushing into the communion prayer and getting out. Right, right. <clears throat> makes sense. Oh, the, the, I mean, you just you I, said not long ago left the seminary, um, you know, graduated, you know. Uh, do they teach you public speaking and, and oh, yeah. so I'm not a priest. I'm not good at it. They just not. It's true. It's true. It's the first, the first, yeah, the first year we have just intro public speaking, which is simply learning how to be give a give a talk or just to learn how to how to, how to public speak, frankly. Second year we do um, weekday homilies. Third year is weekend homilies. Fourth year is advanced preaching, funerals, weddings, baptisms. But by that point, you're already a deacon and actually preaching in real world, real liturgy situations. Um, so the hope is that between your summer assignments, you have different reflections and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's it's it. Peter, it definitely is one of the main challenges the Catholic church faces where our Protestant brothers and sisters, you know, do it pretty well. But we don't always do it so great ourselves. So yeah, it's one of the right one of the challenges we face for sure. Um out there. Yeah. They should I mean they should do a renewal I mean you know you know refresher course every year. Right. Yeah. yeah right. It's so well, you get your message out there and yeah. how you, you make the mass much more interesting. I mean right. I, you know, there's like surveys saying that more than 60% of Catholics don't even know that's the real body and blood of Jesus Christ. And yet, you go to Mass and the priest never mentions it. Yeah. It doesn't hurt to reinforce it. Well, I think it depends also upon, you know, the church you're going to and the priests who are there. I mean, I think that's always also a, a situation of it. You know, one of those things where if you're going to a parish and you walk in on a Saturday afternoon for argument's sake, and you see a little bit of a line for community for a confession. If you take it to the bank, the priests there preach on confession. If we preach about it, it shows it's important. Our people almost through osmosis realize that. But it's never talked about, but it's never highlighted, never spoken of. They assume it isn't important. Uh, exactly. But it is spoken about. They assume that it is. And that's incumbent upon us, who are the, you know, the clergy, to to make sure that we're speaking about the essentials of the faith and, and, and being doing it in an articulate, educated way. For sure. And part of it also is is the, is the absolute essential nature for a priest to keep his education going. The reading he does, um, what kind of what kind of magazines is he subscribing to? Is he getting is he getting, you know, common wheel first things, America? Is he reading things that are going to help him to be up on the Catholic events as well as reading the Times, reading the Post, what's happening in the world around you. Um, one priest years ago has said, the priest who preached with, the, with your time on one hand, and the Bible in the other. Like you're using, you're using the, you're applying scripture to real world situations that people respond to that. Stories are big, personal life experiences, uh. things that connect you to them. Uh. If you're speaking only in abstractions, it's difficult to make a connection there. Very difficult.
just texted that he's having a little bit of difficulty logging in, but he's trying. He should be on shortly. Okay, thank you. And uh, Colastico says he's running a little late. That he should be in within any minute. Okay, thank you. What's he using? Your old computer, Bob? What's that, John? Hi, Ed. Welcome. Hi, Father. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. I wonder if Dan's using Bob's old computer. Whatever. Father wouldn't know that, but Dan, Bob's old computer didn't have a camera, and he always had trouble logging in. Now oh, we have, right? okay. Now we can remember what Bob looks like. Good upgrade, man. Come on, you know it's. <clears throat> I don't have a father. I don't. I, other than doing a little research, I really don't use a computer. Okay, I got you. You're being a carpenter, I, you know. Oh yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not your your thing. It's not my yeah, forte. You. You'll probably hit it with a hammer. Can <laughs> you teach an old dog new tricks, huh? Oh. <laughs> that explains why computer with the hammer. Sorry, I'm late, folks. It's okay. I was gonna joke, Bob, and say I've seen you're working. You're not a carpenter either, but I've seen your work. <laughs> I've seen your work, and it actually is very good. So I can't even joke. Christopher, we don't mind waiting for you, Christopher. It's almost like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> you got to bring that up about every three months. But see, Father likes Christopher as well, so that's I can't react to it. Why don't we start with the prayer, guys, and then we'll do some housekeeping stuff, and then we'll get into the lesson, okay? Great. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. With American martyrs, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, guys, welcome back after two weeks with Columbus Day in between. So a couple things um, before we begin the lesson tonight. First is that I'll be looking at your papers uh, this week to grade them. And since they're all being sent to me via email, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make some comments at the bottom of the emails and give you the grade that way and uh, send it back to you that, rather than kind of marking it up and mailing it back to you in a hard copy. It's easier to... Um, make some comments at the end of the paper and kind of just mail back to you guys, email back to you guys that way. You think it's simple that way. Um, please put your microphones in here. I'm mute. Good job. Thank you, everybody. And I'm pleased to welcome tonight uh, Ed Meckman from the public policy uh, element of the Archdiocese. And Ed has done a great deal of work regarding the assisted suicide laws in New York and the whole push for euthanasia here in the, in the state. And, um, Welcome to us about a very, very important topic tonight that uh, will affect all of us in our ministry. The fact is, this is becoming more and more prevalent in our society. 
and really seeking to have answers to it, understand the nature of what is going on, and to get a real good handle on how best to respond to the challenges that we're facing and we're going to be continue facing as as time moves on here. Um, it was not long ago when uh, the idea of assisted suicide was relegated to only a couple of states and it wasn't a popular thing, but more and more it's becoming a, a very um, accepted and even laudable, uh, falsely laudable thing. So um, as this presentation tonight certainly will help us get a better handle on this and understand better how we can respond uh, to the challenges, the life, and those most vulnerable that are around us. So Ed, I'm gonna welcome you and ask you to please uh, take it away, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you very much, Father. Hello uh, to all you guys. It's great to be here. I was speaking to the Deacon candidates. Um, what I'd like to do is sort of lay the groundwork for you a little bit with uh, some of the, the sort of underlying thoughts and concepts that the assisted suicide advocates rely on uh, and how they contrast so dramatically with the Catholic view of human life and the value of human life. And then uh, just cover very briefly, because you have them in the documents, the basic Catholic principles, just highlighting a few of the really important points where you see the, the disputes becoming more pointed. And then hone in on uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia. You know, assisted suicide and euthanasia are really two peas in a pod. Uh, everywhere around the world where you see these, uh, these policies advancing, they, they move in tandem. Uh, usually it's assisted suicide that they put out front because people are uncomfortable with euthanasia. They remember maybe the old days with the, in the Nazi regime where they were euthanizing uh, people. Euthanasia, by the way, is just a fancy word for murder, uh, murder with a supposedly merciful motive. Uh, but everywhere where the movement is active, it's in Europe very seriously, it's in a number of states, it's very active in Canada. They use assisted suicide as the sort of the, the first uh, camel's nose under the tent and then passive euthanasia and then active euthanasia come in after that. And I'll explain all those different concepts. But what I think is, is so important for us, especially for you when you go out and, and you're doing your ministry in the parishes, is to understand this fundamental clash between a particular worldview that supports the assisted suicide euthanasia movement and our view of, of, um, of life. You know, we believe that life is always a good thing, that it's a gift from God, that I don't create myself, uh, that I don't own my life. I don't have complete autonomy to do whatever the heck I want with my life. And I have a duty to preserve my life. And I have a duty to preserve the life of others, people who are dependent on me or people I'm in, I'm in relationship with. We believe that every life has value, every life, uh, and that nobody loses their value based on capacity. This, this relationship between capacity and value is critical to this issue. We believe that no matter what the person's capacity, no matter what they can do, no matter what they look like, no matter what their skill level is they always have value all of us have equal value nobody is more valuable than others because of that we believe that dignity is something that is inherent in us it's not something anybody gives us it's not my subjective impression of how much i like my life or how much i like my conditions it's always something that god has given to us and i never lose my dignity no matter what 
it, you know, obviously it's always wrong to cause the, the death of an innocent person. We know that. That's basic fundamental, right? Ten Commandments uh, uh, kind of teaching. But it's, it's very important to keep in mind that we can take a life by act or omission, right? For what I have done and for what I have failed to do, we say at Mass every time, right? The world's view is very different. It's dramatically different. Um, you know, a lot of this is because of the loss of influence by religion, particularly Christian religion, over secular ethics. Uh, the idea of ethical relativism, that everybody makes up their own morality and ethics that fits their own desires. Um, fundamentally, our society uh, really relies a lot on utilitarian thinking, which is how useful is this person? How valuable is this person? And we can weigh people in the balance, you know, the benefit and the burden of this person, this person's lives. I mean, you can see this by our culture in general, the, the way we glorify rich people and celebrities and beautiful people and sports athletes and how we kind of denigrate or who don't have those characteristics. Society suffering. Uh, it's a happiness society. It's a pleasure society. So suffering is rejected and everything that should be, can be done has to be done to reduce my suffering. Most importantly, our society uh, really has a notion that your value depends on your capacity. And as your capacity goes up, your value goes up. And as your capacity goes down, your value goes down. Uh, I, if you are young, and healthy, and strong, and skilled, you've got a lot of value in our society. But if maybe you're old or if you're disabled or you have a lack of mental or physical capabilities, you're, you're sort of the marginalized people that Pope Francis always likes to talk about. Society kind of turns its eyes away from you. Uh, and we look at you as something that, that we just, just don't consider as valuable. Um, tied in with that too is the same concept that feeds into abortion, which is the idea that it's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. Um, you know, we, um, you look out there and you see how uh, the old eugenics movement, back from the old days where they were trying to create a stronger race, you know, this is part of the, the Nazi ideology, uh, really devalues people with disabilities and, and people who don't have all of, again, the wonderful characteristics that people, that people value. Assisted suicide and euthanasia play right into this mindset. It takes advantage of this notion that we don't want anybody to suffer, uh, that we don't even understand the meaning or value of suffering, that I have absolute autonomy, uh, and that my life loses value as I lose capacity. Assisted suicide and euthanasia flow right in behind that. And if there's any one thing that we need to do better as a church, is we need to engage that debate right there on value and capacity because a lot of people have bought into it a lot of our catholic people have bought into it and they don't even realize what they've bought into um, because the people who promote assisted suicide and euthanasia rely on an idea of false compassion you know a, a lot of the folks who advocate for this stuff they really believe in this they really believe that it is compassionate to let people uh, die of dehydration or starvation. They really believe that it's uh, compassionate to let people overdose on barbiturates or to have a doctor give them a lethal injection. They believe that that's compassionate. Uh, and we need to we need to fight directly against that because it's a, it's a lie. 
Uh, it's a lie to the person, it's a lie to the family and loved ones, and it's a lie to society as a whole. Now you have the, the books from the, the Bishops' Conference, the U.S. Bishops' Conference and the New York State Bishops' Conference, that lay out the basic teachings, and I'm not going to go into that in any kind of great detail. You can read that for yourself. But what I want to hone in on is a couple of key concepts in there because they're the issues that come up over and over again, and they are they're a bit confusing to a lot of people. It's funny, when I go out and give talks about, about this issue, I uh, will present the, the teaching of the church in great detail, and very few people have questions about that. They have questions about pragmatic things. What if, what happens, what do I do, what did this person do? The, the, the critical issue that people, I think, are most confused about and that we need to clarify people for people is the distinction between care on the one hand and treatment on the other. Um, care, the way I like to describe it is care is the kind of thing we do for a baby. Right? You know, when you have a baby, you, you feed them, you give them you know, formula, something to drink, you keep them comfortable, you give them shelter over their heads, you clean their diaper when they're dirty, and you show them love and attention, you know? Um, that's care. That's what we expect from a babysitter, much less a mother or a father, right? Treatment is something we do when the baby's sick. You know, the baby falls down the stairs or the baby starts coughing or has a fever. Something is wrong with the baby's health and we need to try to fix it. That's what you should think of the doctor or the nurse, right? That's what they do. The babysitter provides basic care, basic human needs. The medical professional provides treatment, uh, something that will help to either alleviate the symptoms or cure the disease. And that's also a critical thing. There's the, there's the disease or the condition and there's the symptoms. And a lot of times uh, uh, doctors and a lot of other people kind of give up if they can't cure because they're, I mean, doctors love to cure. That's what they're trained to do. They're, they're miracle workers at that. But a lot of times people give up if you can't cure uh, and they won't, they won't even treat the symptoms. You know, uh, uh, our medical system, our medical professionals, and we as family members and friends, you know, we deserve to help people deal with the symptoms. You know, we care for them even if we can't cure them. Right? In the Catholic moral analysis, that basic form of care, food, water, comfort, shelter, all those things are almost always morally required. Almost always. Uh, there are very, very, very few circumstances under which those basic care, especially food and water, would not be morally uh, required. Um, even if it's assisted, even if it's through a tube, even if it's by spoon fed, it is almost always morally required. The rare case where it's not morally required really is a unique situation at the very tail end of life within 48 or 72 hours of death where the person physically cannot assimilate liquid or food. In that case, it, it might cause excess burdens and may be foregone, but in virtually every other case, Food and hydration is required. It's the basic duty we have to provide for our loved ones and our friends. You know, if we didn't give those things to a baby, right, and they died of it, we would be arrested. Uh, it would be a terrible sin, and everybody would know that if we left the baby in the corner and just gave them a, a, a sedation, right, so that they slept through while they while they died of dehydration, we would all be arrested. We'd be on the front page of the newspapers. So this is an, a really important. 
because people a lot of times think that assisted food and assisted nutrition and assisted hydration, they think that they're extraordinary or they think they're treatment, but they're not. They're care. And this is absolutely vital because when people go into the hospital and, they're in, and they have a loved one in a particular condition, maybe they're in a persistent vegetative state or maybe they've had a stroke or something like that, I can guarantee you they will start to feel pressure from the medical professionals to withhold food and water. Absolutely, it happens all the time. One of my colleagues, former colleague, Sister Lucy of the Sisters of Life, her mother had a stroke, they were in the hospital, and the doctors flat out asked Sister Lucy, do you want to stop uh, nutrition and hydration? This is asking a Sister of Life about that. But there's almost always pressure to do this. Uh, so it's really a point we have to defend is this distinction between care, always morally required, and treatment, which may or may not be morally required based on whether it's proportionate or disproportionate. And uh, again, the, the explanations in the, in the, especially in the New York State Catholic Conference book on this is really very, very good. You know, the, the extraordinary versus ordinary are also proportionate or disproportionate. Those are two basically interchangeable terms. Uh, uh, that's the dividing line in whether the treatment, the, you know, the medicine, the interventions are morally required or not. If it's extraordinary or disproportionate, they're not morally required. If they are ordinary and proportionate, they are. And it basically involves a balancing test. It's very fact specific. It's very difficult to give general uh, statements, you know, it's, uh, about things that treatments that are always morally obligatory. Very difficult to do that. It's very fact specific. But it's a weighing of the benefits and burdens to the patient, right? Primarily to the patient. Uh, there is an element of burden on the family and burden on the community, but the primary consideration is, will this treatment help the patient without causing too much pain and suffering? That's the primary uh, question. And again, it doesn't have to cure. It can just treat the symptoms, alleviate the symptoms. You know, a lot of people, they, they get a chronic illness, uh, terminal cancer. My mom died of terminal cancer. Um, we knew that she could never be cured. It had gotten too far, but we constantly approved of treatments to address the symptoms and alleviate the symptoms. It's the patient we have to think about primarily, not the doctor's interests, not the hospital, not the family, not the government, not the insurance company. It's the patient we have to focus on. And unfortunately, a lot of times we, we, we talk about and we hear talk about burdens. And we have to be really careful about this because the question is the burden on the patient and not is their life burdensome, right? The question is, will, will the treatment help more than it will hurt? I mean, everybody's life is a burden, I guess, to some extent. My wife, I'm a burden to my wife's life, that's for sure. She has to take care of me all the time. Um, we're all burdens to people. That can't be the factor. Uh, uh, you know, disabled people see this very, very clearly. Disabled people, disabilities rights organizations are our most advoca uh, active advocates because they see that when people start talking about burdens and about how burdens are in life are unacceptable, they know that people are talking about them. I was at a debate, a legal debate, um, over the assisted suicide cases that had gone up to our New York State Court of Appeals. And I, on my side was a disabilities rights woman, a lovely young lady 
uh, a lawyer, super smart, actually very beautiful. And I'm not supposed to mention that, I guess, but she's beautiful. And she's in a wheelchair because she can't walk. I can't remember what her condition was, but she couldn't walk. I think it was spina bifida. And the other side, the people who are advocating for assisted suicide and euthanasia, we're talking about burdens and you can't toilet yourself and you can't move yourself. You need help getting to the doctor. You can't groom yourself. And the young lady next to me said, hey, you're talking about those burdens. That's my life. You're saying that my life is not worth living. So they, the, the disabled people see this very, very clearly. Uh, and we just can't pull the plug on grandma or put a pillow over her face because she's a burden. Her life always has value, no matter what the capacity is. Remember, she always has value and she never loses her value, even if it imposes a burden of time and effort or money on me. Okay. So let's then move on right to assisted suicide and, and euthanasia. And as I said before, these are false mercies. Uh, they're very often people who are well motivated. They don't want their loved one to suffer uh, and all that. It's not that the, their motives are bad, but their means are bad. Uh, you know, we, we will not, uh, um, we don't want people to suffer. God doesn't want us to suffer. Suffering is bad. It's a consequence of original sin, right? Uh, uh, the whole Christian message, as Pope John Paul said in one of his encyclicals, the whole Christian message is a response to human suffering. Uh, but the response has to be a Christian one, not a, you know, throw them out. That's what Pope Francis talks about, the throwaway society, right? I finished my glass of water. Uh, well, this one I won't throw out because my wife will get mad at me, but I'll, I'll put it in the sink, right? Get rid of it. We don't do that with people. Uh, so we, we, it, it's, a, it's a lie that the assisted suicide and euthanasia people rely on by telling people essentially your life is not worth anything anymore even if you're suffering from grave illnesses. There is a document that uh, one of the assisted suicide groups uh, uses. It's called an advanced directive for dementia. And it's for how people can tell what kind of care they want uh, after they go into dementia. And I just want to read you one line. I'm going to talk more about advanced directives. I just want to read you one line because I think it really captures the, the mentality uh, of the euthanasia assisted suicide movement. This comes from their document. It says this, under the conditions of advanced dementia, including my inability to communicate rationally with loved ones or caregivers, and or my physical dependence on others for all aspects of bodily care, continuing life would have no value for me. So it's basically a surrender to this idea of capacity and, and value. No capacity, no value is what this is saying. And again, that's the mentality right there. There are two different kinds of, of euthanasia. One is active, that's actively taking, you know, the doctor giving a lethal injection. But the really insidious and dangerous form of euthanasia is passive euthanasia. Withholding some kind of care or treatment in order to cause death. And the most popular one that's being advocated by a lot of the, the advocacy groups is called VSED, Voluntary Cessation of Eating and Drinking. And it's basically starving yourself or dehydrating yourself to death. And that is becoming uh, that plus what they call palliative sedation, which is a legitimate thing. But what they mean is put the person under with morphine so that nobody recognizes how much they're suffering. Because dehydration is a terrible thing to endure. 
Uh, so passive euthanasia is the thing that is being promoted uh, to a great extent by the advocates and even by a lot of people in the medical community. You don't want to, you, know, you don't want to feed this person. You don't want to do food and water. You know, let's not give them antibiotics. Uh, uh, let's not treat the un, some of the underlying or consequential illnesses. Uh, you know, uh, pneumonia can be the, what they used to call the old man's best friend. Those kinds of things. It's not treating, or even worse, withholding care. Now, assisted suicide, as I, as I said, is the camel's nose under the tent. They don't even like to use that word. They won't use suicide. They'll call it medical aid in dying. And you like that medical aid in dying. Um, I was, if you ever go to any forum uh, with the assisted suicide crowd and you start talking about suicide, I, I've done it in public and I've gotten yelled at from the audience. As soon as, as soon as I mention suicide, it's not suicide, they'll say. Suicide is a bad thing. Suicide is when young people, young healthy people decide to kill themselves. No. Uh, uh, Doing something deliberately to cause my own death is suicide, no matter what, no matter how many euphemisms you make up. All the courts that have considered this issue have rejected that euphemism, including our very liberal New York State Court of Appeals. Uh, it's not, we have to watch out for the language, right? If you control the language, you control people's minds and their values. We cannot accept the notion of aid in dying or medical aid in dying. It is assisted suicide. It is a person asking a doctor to give me a massive overdose of pills uh, and then implicate other people in helping me because you always have to have other people help you. Uh, you have to have the doctor, you have to have the pharmacy, and you'll always have the insurance company paying for this. In fact, the insurance companies love to pay for assisted suicide uh, uh, because it's a heck of a lot cheaper than chemotherapy. Uh, assisted suicide is not a particularly uh, um, gentle way of dying either. The most common medicine that they use is a form of barbiturate. You have to swallow something like 90 pills. Now, think about that, swallowing 90 pills. And in fact, the first pill you have to swallow is one that represses your, your body's natural defense of throwing up so that you, you, won't, you won't get rid of the pills. Um, so this, this is the movement. This, it's legal in, I think, 10 states right now, plus the, uh, the District of Columbia. Uh, there is a gigantic movement uh, afoot here in, the, in New York to legalize it. They have a very uh, well-funded, active lobbyists uh, up in our New York State Capitol. Uh, they go around the community and give talks that promote this, medical aid and dying, and, uh, uh, VSED, and other forms of passive euthanasia. You'll probably see them coming to your library or your community center. A lot of your parishioners will go to those um those events because they build them as advanced planning for a dignified death, things like that. And who could be against that? Um, the assisted suicide will inevitably lead to active euthanasia because you have to understand how lawyers think, and this has happened all around the, all around the world. If I can kill myself, why can't I ask you to actively help me? What if I want to kill myself and I can't do it physically? Wow. How can you deny me the right to have someone else do this to me? Um, I can't say what I want or what I don't want. So how can you deny me the right to have a surrogate make this decision for me? Because it's in the area of surrogate decision-making that I think this is in some ways the, the scariest thing. Um, when I say surrogate, I mean when you're unable to make decisions for yourself, you're incapacitated, someone else makes the medical decisions for you. 
And there's a couple of different ways that this is done under the law. The most common one, the one that we recommend for people is called a healthcare proxy, uh, where people uh, sign a document with two witnesses. You don't need a lawyer, you don't need a notary. Um, and you appoint someone to make the healthcare decisions for you. And they're supposed to make it in your best interests and according to your wishes, desires, and religious beliefs. The other way that a surrogate is appointed is through automatically through the court, uh, through the law. The law appoints a surrogate uh, according to a formula in the law, your spouse, your adult children, parents, that kind of thing. Uh, and again, person's best interests and the family's wishes. Well, uh, the danger is that instead of a pure proxy or allowing this uh, Family Health Decisions Act, that's what it's called, to take effect, people promote some, a document called a living will. Now, again, if you read the New York State Catholic Conference document, they'll explain all the problems with living wills. And the biggest problem is that they're inflexible. They give fixed direction to the doc that the doctors and the, and the nurses have to abide by. Um, there's a slight variation on this called a most form medical orders for life sustaining treatment that is done in a hospital or nursing home. But basically it's, it's a rigid, inflexible uh, order to the doctors and the nurses. And almost always these forms, the forms that you fill out are basically let me die documents. Don't give me this. Don't give me that. Don't give me this. Don't give me that. Uh, and that's really dangerous. People will download these documents from online and they will fill them out on, on, on just without understanding them. And they will wind up giving directions to be killed by neglect. Uh, the one group, Compassion and Choices, which is our primary adversary in this battle, they have something called an advanced directive for dementia. You know, what, giving directions for what, hap what should happen to me if I go into dementia. And it says, no antibiotics. No other medications or treatments, even if I have been getting them before. No food or hydration uh, and so-called palliative sedation put me under so people don't understand that I'm dying of dehydration. Uh, it is an advanced, you're committing suicide in advance, but you're basically implicating other people in murder. You're asking other people to murder you. So uh, uh, this these things are, I think, difficult to explain to people, but it's very, very important that at least you guys understand this when you go out into the field and you're in the in the, in ministry in the parishes and when you go into the hospitals and you start to do uh, chaplaincy work. We have to fight against the value capacity thing. We have to help people understand that, yes, I am going to die someday. I don't want to, but I will die someday. Uh, and I have to accept that death will come at God's time from some kind of cause, but hopefully, God willing, not from the act or omission of some other human being. Uh, nobody should have my life in their hands. Only God should have my life uh, in his hands. But we also have to respond to the legitimate fears that underlie this movement, this desire to end suffering. They do it in a morally wrong and really ultimately deceptive uh, way. But our church offers beautiful ways to, uh, to approach this. The, the USCCB document, To Live Each Day with Dignity, I think is a beautiful document. Uh, it really talks about accompaniment of people who are in their, in their uh, suffering, in their last days. 
uh, people who are losing uh, their pride. You know, they, it, it is that people, a lot of people think it is undignified. I have to call my son-in-law over to change my diaper. Okay. Well, you know, I changed his diaper for a few years. He should come over and change mine. Uh, uh, things like that. Those are real fears though. And we have to affirm them. People are afraid. They don't want to suffer and they don't want to watch their loved ones suffer and they don't want to deal with the suffering. Um, not all of that is selfish. Uh, uh, some of it is quite noble. Nobody wants their loved ones to, to suffer. But the best way to do this is not to acquiesce in killing people. Uh, the best way to do it is to accompany people uh, and to show people true love, mercy. Uh, uh, give us a chance to show, to, to have the grace of helping you, right? And to accompany you. I think it's vitally important that we have uh, witnesses who can testify to this people who are going through the dying process uh, and are being accompanied by loved ones, people who have done it with their loved ones. We need people to step out and talk about it uh, and about how beautiful it can be, even with the suffering. It does not have to be a horrible, lonely experience. Um, you know, it, this is especially important, I think, for people who are sort of on the, as I said, on the margins of society, uh, uh, people who are, you know, low-income people, Immigrants, I think, especially people who don't understand our language, God help us if they go into our hospitals and try to figure out what the heck is going on there. People who, who live in low-income areas, I mean, we all know that the health care in those, in those areas is much worse. Um, I was having a debate with assisted suicide people up in Scarsdale once. Scarsdale Women's Club. Very fancy place. And... Um, what our side said, you know, this is nice that we can talk about this here in Scarsdale because you have Mount Sinai, you have Sloan Kettering, you have Columbia uh, uh, Presbyterian, whatever the hospital's name is nowadays. You have all these great hospitals here. You know, wealthy people, you have access to everything. I said, drive, I don't know, five miles south into Mount Vernon and see what kind of health care they have, see what kind of hospital access they have. Go a little further into the Bronx and see, you know, take a look at how's Montefiore's emergency room treating people these days. Uh, last time I was there, it was, it was like being in Calcutta with people, I mean, lined up and piled up everywhere. Go to St. Barnabas Hospital or places like that, um, Bronx, Lebanon. Uh, the wealth disparity in our country plays through in healthcare. We know that. Um, so we really need to pay attention, especially to the, the people who are on the margins and people who are most vulnerable. One of the, the worst things that I've, I've heard recently is we heard it through the grapevine. There was a pastor who was trying to address this situation, and he basically said to someone, eventually, we got hold of the information. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know where to get in, in information or help. And that's, that's just such a shame. The National Catholic Bioethics Center has a 24-hour hotline that people can call to get advice about particular bioethics, end-of-life decisions. Our Respect Life office, you can call them, uh, the Sisters of Life st uh, staff that, I work with them, we can always help people find answers. Uh, the State Catholic Conference can help people. Nobody should ever uh, think that they have to make these decisions alone. Nobody should ever think that they have to make these decisions without good, solid information about what the Catholic uh, uh, belief and teaching is. And nobody should ever go into, into this decision without an understanding of the way that we will walk with them. You know, we Catholics with the church will walk with people through every element of their suffering. You know, because suffering is not just physical. 
it's psychological, it's spiritual, and it's social. Uh, and there's a lot of different kinds of things, a lot of different kinds of healing that needs to go on in each of these areas. And that's what that you as deacons, a father as a priest, uh, our church really specializes, I think, in is helping people heal. Uh, not just physically, that's, you know, the doctors can do that again. They're miracle workers. But emotionally, spiritually, uh, making amends within families, healing divisions, helping people to forgive themselves for sins that they've committed, uh, accepting the healing forgiveness of God. Uh, all of these things are the things that we uh, we can bring to the table or bring to the, the bedside. So just to, to wrap it all up then, um, again, we, I think the, the, the crucial points are making sure that people understand that our value is not dependent on our capacity, that we have infinite value. Every individual has infinite value in the eyes of God. We're all made in, the, in his image and likeness. And we would never throw a crucifix or a holy statue into the street, into the garbage. And we can't do that to the image of God in each other. Um, that we have to work against this false compassion that would take the easy way out from suffering by easing people's death, basically by killing them, either by neglect or by a direct action or by assisting them in killing themselves. We could never, we should never acquiesce in that false mercy uh, that comes from there. Uh, we're able to distinguish between the care and treatment, the care that's always obligatory, and the treatment that we have to make decisions about. Um, and then also that we can fight in the public arena, help people understand how important it is to fight against this, uh, this movement to legalize assisted suicide and eventually euthanasia. They desperately want to win New York. They really do. Uh, the, the, the approach they're following is the same as the, as the gay rights people did with same-sex marriage, the redefinition of marriage. They knock off a certain number of states to try to get to critical mass so that it seems inevitable, and then other states acquiesce. Uh, we, should, we should draw the line here and really fight against it hard here so it doesn't get any further. Um, and again, the last, the last point, of course, what I was just talking about a second ago is the accompaniment and the, uh, helping to bring the spiritual blessings. Uh, into the sick room and helping people uh, go off into eternal life uh, in, a, in a good and really dignified way. You know, my life doesn't end in the hospital or, or in the nursing home, uh, right? My life goes on uh, and hopefully it'll be better than this one. No suffering uh, uh, with God forever. So that's our task. So that's basically the, the presentation. Uh, and I'm open for questions. Is that okay, Father? Is that good? Great, thanks, Ed. Yeah, question to be excellent. Please, guys, go ahead. I have a lot of questions. Everybody does. I mean, my statistics or research shown that more and more suicides are being done by younger people. I know we've been emphasizing on older people near the end of their lives and so forth. But uh, I know that more and more teenagers have been committing suicide through my work with the youth group. I actually made a pamphlet to educate people, you know, teenagers and so forth, about suicide. And I was told not to distribute it. I was uh, doing a teenage concert, not me playing, but I arranged one. And, uh, and I was told not to distribute the flyers out, that parents do not feel comfortable discussing suicide with teenagers or their children. Have you had any work? On that or what age is the appropriate age to discuss this? 
Um, well, the um, suicide is one of the leading causes of death for uh, young people in the United States, for non-accidental deaths. It's one of the leading causes of death. Uh, before COVID hit, uh, the uh, the two big age groups for, for suicide were basically 14 to t- early 20s and then middle-aged men. Uh, um, COVID has changed things somewhat, uh, but there was a study out just a few months ago that said that something like 25% of young people during COVID uh, have contemplated suicide, or at least had it come to their minds. So I hate to say it this way, but I don't care that parents are uncomfortable about us talking about suicide. We need to talk about it. We care what the parents think. <laughs> you know, that's why they stopped me from distributing the flyers. Well, yeah, you know, well. Uh, um, we talk to kids about drugs. We talk to kids about violence. Uh, uh, we talk to kids about sex uh, because it's vitally important and it's part of the gospel. We can't, we can't leave. There are people suffering and who may try to commit suicide. And God forbid that we say nothing uh, when we could have said something. That's almost like letting them die by neglect. So, um, yeah, it's got to be age specific, of course, but there's nothing that you can give to a 15 year old about suicide that they haven't heard already or that they haven't read about already uh, or that they haven't seen on TV. Right? How many movies and, and miniseries have come out over the last few years that kind of glorify uh, suicide or, or even teen suicide? Was it 13 ways to, to kill yourself or something like that was the, the, the series on Netflix? 13 reasons why. 13 reasons yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we got to talk about it uh, because they know people who kill themselves or have tried to. I can guarantee it. And uh, another question is like, if she, I mean, I'm being honest. I don't know what I would do. But uh, if you know one of your loved ones, well, most likely your parent, is going to die. They're going to die in two or three days. There's no doubt about it. And they're in a lot of pain. And they they beg you to assist them in their suicide. It's not about money, it's about pain. You definitely know they're dying, yet that's a sin, correct? Also, also, you know someone's gonna kill themselves and you don't stop them, that's a sin. Yes, we can't stop them, right? Obviously you can't completely stop them. What I would say to the loved one is, you don't need to be in pain. We can treat your pain. Uh, if you listen to the pain management doctors, like the, uh, uh, Dr. Brescia and his people, Dr. Comfort over at Calvary Hospital, they are absolutely adamant that virtually every incidence of physical pain, physical pain, can be dealt with by good medication. Yeah, but they're, 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 they're like completely numb. I mean, I, my mother, I have more my mother-in-law. Because, you know, she's completely numb. They gave her so much morphine and everything. You know, she couldn't respond. She was like a vegetable. You know, and the doctors were saying, again, as you stated, and it's got to do with money, you know, pull the plug. Thank God I didn't have to make that decision, you know, being the son-in-law. But, it's a, you know, it's about money. The doctors, you know, they're like, they don't make money on that. It's like, because the insurance company refused to pay after a certain number of days or whatever. Yes. The doctors keep, oh, oh, how can you let your mother live like that? And they put, like you said, they put pressure you know, blah, 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 you know, she's suffering, you know, pull the plug, blah, blah, blah. That's not really a life if they're completely a vegetable. Well, that's, that's their attitude, of course. Yeah. 
yeah, they don't see any value in her because she's just, yeah, as you say, they use that horrible uh, degrading term, uh, dehumanizing term, that they're a vegetable. No, she's not. She's not a tomato. That's my mother. My mother didn't suddenly become a, you know, a pepper. Uh, she's still a human being. And so what I would, you have to fight. Uh, sometimes we have to fight uh, with the doctors and the, and the hospital and the social workers and the insurance company. Treat the symptoms. I know you can't cure mom. I know she's going to die, but treat the symptoms. Uh, help her, give her, give her enough medication so that she's not in pain. You don't have to knock her out. Um, uh, sometimes they, you know, the the giving people sedatives can hasten death a little bit by suppressing their body function. But you're not doing it to kill them. You're doing it to deal with their their symptoms. It's the double effect uh, principle. But uh, yeah, we have to we have to make sure that we don't let the um, the dehumanization of our loved ones get into our heads uh, right. because it's it's very easy and from that sense of compassion I don't want her to suffer so we, we got to fight sometimes what about now another example as you mentioned on uh, uh, health proxy healthcare proxy you're not you're named to make the decision for them and they tell you they want you to let them die now I don't know if there's any legal law now can I go to, if I can go to jail, if I don't obey the press? You can't go to jail. There's no, uh, there's no uh, proxy, uh, uh, proxy offenses. Um, if you are asked to do something that as a proxy that's against your moral beliefs, then you shouldn't accept the proxy. You know, and you can explain that to the person. If you want me to, I'm not going to kill you. So if you want someone to kill you, you're going to have to find somebody else because I'm going to treat your, your symptoms. I'm going to preserve your life as if it was my own. Uh, I won't do it. I mean, you don't have to, you, you, just because someone signs a document, you don't have to be complicit in, in a mortal sin. Right? So most people don't know, like, you know, this is what's going to yeah. happen when they agree. They usually say, okay, you know, this is what you want, make you happy, okay. And then yeah. you find out later, like, no, uh, you know, support, you know, not to continue. Yeah. Uh, well, fortunately, very few people, since assisted suicide is still illegal here, uh, you won't get proxies here in New York, at least you might in New Jersey, where they uh, where it's uh, where they say, help me you know, commit suicide. What you will get, though, is is people who want to be taken off of uh, assisted food and hydration. And that's and we just can't cooperate. In. Uh, can't. I have to share my pet peeve because you did it a little bit, too. When you say there's no, you know, that, that all life has value. And it's equal value. But yet, I can't stand how many people say, oh, she was so beautiful. Like, if it was an ugly person that died, it's okay. But if they're good looking, that's worse. Really? Yeah. Yeah, nobody seems to mourn uh, uh, average people. Everybody just seems to mourn the celebrities, right? Uh, when they die, you know, when Princess Diana dies, it's a catastrophe. But, uh, you know, when someone's grandma dies around the corner, nobody seems to notice it. Yeah. Hope actually wrote wrote about that about how what kind of twisted world we have when when celebrities uh, when they die, everything is stopped for uh, for weeks where everybody mourns but when the homeless guy dies nobody pays attention. Oh, when when Princess Diana died within two days, mother and uh, uh, died, died and she got no nothing. Drowned out and she did a lot more. Yes. Oh yes. You have a big example about Kobe Bryant. They're still talking about Kobe Bryant and about the other people who was in the plane with him. That's right. 
Yeah, because he was the he was the superstar. Uh, but you know that pilot, his his life was as valuable to him. Him, yeah. Life was to him. Yeah, it's a it's a messed up view of the world. But again, people see Kobe Bryant. He's, he's got so much capability, so much capacity, and uh, they think he's more valuable. And that pilot, he's a nobody. Back with him. I mean, I think it's human nature to a certain extent that, for example, if somebody Shut up. who's got money and they donate a lot of that money to charity to help other people and then that person dies. I mean, I'm just being <laughs> honest. I feel worse because that person was helping so many people and you think, oh, like they say, they could die young. You know, if it's a bad person that dies, it's like, Think, you know, like, not that you say thank God, but like, no loss. And that person was a rotten person. Oh my God. And, you know, they really? didn't contribute to any goodness in the world. Those are not that. I have this. People cry when Hitler got killed. Yeah, the good, well, the good thing is that God doesn't judge according to our standards. And we love have this in <laughs> If he did, if, if God judged the way that we do, uh, I think a lot of us would be in trouble. I certainly would be. And. Uh, yeah, it's it's natural. Uh, a lot of the psalms you hear a lot of the psalms. You know why why are this why are those evil people prospering and us good people are suffering? What's up with that? We don't know. The whole book of Job, right? Mr. Oh. Meckman, Mr. Meckman, um, can I can I just uh, Peter? Give me a second. Um, I'm a physician, <laughs> chief of staff of a hospital, a chief of a department, as well as the head of an ethics, bioethics and medical ethics committee. Um, first of all, I really want to thank you for this lecture because I think it's awesome. And it answers a lot of questions that many people have um, concerning end-of-life care, which is extremely, extremely difficult, both as, um, as, a, per, as, a, as, as a family member, as a physician, and as any, you know, any healthcare proxy. Um, I went through this with my, my mom and my dad. Um, and believe it or not, as a physician, um, when my dad went into the hospital, I was pressured beyond belief to the point where I had a pulmonary fellow fired from the hospital for actually, you know, trying to convince me to sign a DNR order on my dad because he didn't want to intubate him. And I ultimately, it got so bad where I had to intubate my father on my own. Um, on top of that, you know, as he was in the hospital, and I knew he was going to die, um, I was so conflicted with, you know, his care. I mean, I really couldn't even think. And um, people that I had while he was in the ICU, pe doctors that I had been, you know, associated with for years and years in the hospital, um, you know, refused to even talk to me. They avoided me purposely because they didn't want to talk to me about my dad and about his care. And, you know, fortunately, my associate was the one who, you know, talked me off a ledge that, uh, you know, said that, look, you know, you understand, you know, clinical medicine, you have a great heart, and you cared for your parents for 20 years. And um, you're going to know every single, every single day that goes by what type of care you're going to need to withhold. And, um, you know, and he was absolutely right. And, and it was, you know, it was the most painstakingly, you know, difficult, most difficult decisions 
you know, that I had to make in my life. And I'm a head and neck cancer surgeon. And, you know, I deal with life and death every day. But this was, I mean, torturous. And the doctors were completely unhelpful. Um, and, you know, this is one of the reasons why I, you know, I went into the, into the diaconate program was because of the spiritual side of this. Um, which you're right, the doctors don't deal with, nobody deals with. Um, and, you know, when you're the person making the decisions, you're out there on your own. Um, you know, and I can fast forward to like the whole COVID-19 pandemic where I was the chief of staff of the hospital, you know, and my unfortunate record was pronouncing 22 people dead in 24 hours. And, you know, where, you know, death was basically, you know, it was essentially, you know, uh, denigrated to basically a social media event. So while you were holding the hand of one patient, you know, in an ICU room, that's that they're pulling off a ventilator that's dying and the other person is coding was something that you know was unbelievable and to me I, you know that I'll, I'll never get those images out of my head um but you know the reality of the situation is is that this lecture you know especially when it comes down to food and nutri you know food and hydration um, is one of the last things that you have to make the decision about. And I don't think anybody understands because no one will ever, you know, no, nobody, none of the physicians, nobody will ever tell you how painful it is to withhold nutrition and hydration from a human being, you know, at those last minutes of death. And I don't care if it's 48 hours, 72 hours, whatever it is, you know, people just don't understand it. And no one will ever explain that. You know, and it's something that has to be discussed and it has to be brought out into the open. And I thank you very much for doing that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, doctor. I, you know, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. These are hard, hard decisions and they're made at a very difficult time. And this is why people, we, we want people to think ahead. You know, you're sit, you're in the ICU, you're outside the emergency room or whatever. And you're, I mean, you're, your brain is everywhere. Uh, you don't know what to think. So it's very, very difficult. And you're absolutely right. The, the, the thing about the food and hydration, we went through that with my mother and uh, two days before she died, uh, it was, she just couldn't, we, we were spoon, you know, giving her water. She was going to die imminently anyway. And she just stopped. She wouldn't take it. And it was obviously causing her discomfort. And mm. I agonized for, for hours over, should we have her transported to the e to the hospital to have her, you know, uh, to give her some, you know, um, intravenous, and, uh, agonized and then uh, but eventually the, they talked me in off the ledge and said no no come on she's gonna she's gonna die in 24 hours and uh, and she basically did and, yeah uh, boy no hard, i know i know hard hard decisions god bless you for what you do yeah it's horrible i mean it, it i mean you know just i mean i you know i i deal with this on a daily basis because like i said i deal with head and neck cancer patients and you know we you know, when I was a resident, it was, you know, it was common knowledge that if, you know, someone, you know, had an unresectable tumor and they had a carotid blowout, you know, um, if they were a DNR, which is something that people don't really understand. And maybe you can go into that, you know, with, you know, with all the other, you know, students in the class that DNR is really an a la carte menu. And you have to understand what a DNR actually means. You know, so if you if you give a gestalt DNR to, you know, a hospital when your loved one rolls in, then really that means that if they have a problem, 
they just get rolled into the back of, of, you know, some ER and people walk out and that's the end of the game. You know, unless you tell, you specify what is actually important in that DNR, what you want and what you don't want, then, you know, it becomes just, you know, it becomes an exercise in like, oh yeah, patient's a DNR, we're not doing anything. Uh, put them in that room, uh, we'll go take care of the next patient. So, I mean, th- this is, the, you know, this is the problem and, and no one really understands that. And, um, you know, it could, it could actually, if, 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 you know, I'm talking about the doctors now, not you, but, you know, and I know they don't, but, um, I do that, you know, when I have a, you know, when I was a resident, um, you know, people with these unresectable tumors that used to, you know, blow out these major vessels, it was like, okay, their DNR, just hang a bag of morphine and walk out of the room. Well, how the hell do you do that? You can't. If you're a human being and you see someone bleeding to death, you know, I'm going to hang a bag of morphine. I'm going to walk out of the room. No, I can't do that. You know, can't do it now. Couldn't do it then. And um, it's the same, you know, with, with the DNR order. You know, you need to know. People need to know and the people need to understand what they need to do when they when they impose a DNO order on, on their loved ones or anybody else for that matter. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting that you raise that uh, uh, because sometimes when I give this talk in, in public uh, to sort of the general population and I talk about advanced directives and I tell people you got to be really careful about DNRs because sometimes the DNR is basically treated like a, you know, grease the skids and let them go and don't treat them, don't do anything for them. And people look at me like I'm crazy sometimes and they say, no, 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 that's just CPR. You don't have to worry about that. But I was like, everything I hear from doctors and nurses is exactly what you're saying. Uh, And I think it's one of those dirty little secrets, uh, especially in nursing homes uh, that people don't want to talk about. So yeah, it's critical that we, uh, that people understand uh, the re- not just the legalities, because in, in law, yeah, a DNR is limited circumstances to certain kinds of things, but in reality, it's different. And the same thing with living wills and advanced directive, uh, other kinds of advanced directives. If you're not careful, if you're not really specific, uh, they're left die. Just let me die. Yeah. All right. Right. There's a question here. Is yeah, Ed, I was going to ask you. Um, when I was revising my wills a few years back with my wife, I had a great deal of difficulty locating a a Catholic healthcare proxy. Where would you recommend we look to find a very good example of that? The well, the book that you have, the uh, Now and at the Hour of Our Death from the New York State Catholic Conference, has one in the back of the book, and you can find it on the State Catholic Conference website and also in the there's a website that they they refer to there uh we have one up on uh the respect life office has one up on their website also one that i drafted with catholic language um national catholic bioethics center also has one so that's one thing i get you know people need we need to get that out there and uh and make people know about that um yeah and the question about resuscitation well that's an ordinary extraordinary issue right uh um you know, it's, it's a treatment, so you have to decide is the is the benefit to the patient going to outweigh any of the burdens uh, that it would cost to them. So, um, yeah, it's a very fact-specific thing, and you also have to take into account what the person wanted. Because a lot of times, and I'm sure doctor will say, uh, the the when you when your heart stops, basically, 
that's caused by your under underlying ailment. You know, it's not anything. It's not an accident. Uh, and you know, sometimes it's a natural consequence of your of your illness. Uh, so that could you know, not resuscitating the person could very well be their natural death. So uh, it's it's something again. You got to be you got to be very very careful about, very specific about, and it's very fact bound depending on the circumstances. So, but but also dependent up upon you know what the patient's wishes are. That's yes. the most important thing. So you know, so the only thing that gives me comfort sometimes is you know, and I wish my parents would have done this. Um, is that you know is you know if anything, if not for nothing, you know, to make everybody's life easier, you know, your loved ones easier, is to, you know, give, let them know exactly what your wishes are. What do you want? What don't you want? Um, Because when you don't have a set of guidelines, the agony of making those decisions, even as a physician, was beyond the pale for me. And, um, you know, I, I mean, and, and it's something that, you know, you just never forget. It's just, you know, a hole that's left in your heart, in your mind that you always think, well, maybe I should have done this and maybe I shouldn't have done, maybe I should have done that. But, you know, the fact remains is that, you know, the more information that you can push out to the ones that are going to be your proxies or, you know, you like your children or whatever, um, you know, that's, that's the most important thing you can do because, you know, there's nothing worse than having to make those decisions, you know, in, in those instances and, and in that capacity that, I mean, it's just, it's just horrific. It really is. Yeah. And it, it causes a, a long-term, uh, fights in families. Oh God. Yeah. Between each other, a lot of resentment, a lot of guilt. Can't tell you how many times I give, I'll give a talk about, uh, mostly I talk about the legal side of things, the legal side of proxies and stuff like that. And almost inevitably, I get someone raising the question, basically, in other words, did I kill my mother? Right? Did I murder my mother? Yeah, I know. Murder my mother. And, you know, this is people, it happened 20 years ago. Oh my gosh, you've been carrying this around for 20 years, thinking that you killed, you murdered your mother? Oh my God. Um, so. Yeah. You're right. When we, we recommend people to do proxies with a lot of instructions uh, and particularly with language in the instructions. Yeah, no, I mean that. I mean, if anything, that's the most one of the most important things that, you know, anyone can do. And um, because no one should carry that burden with them for the you know, for all that time. And I mean, I'm sorry that you have to do it. I mean, I have to do it. Um you know, it's just, it's just an awful thing. It really is. Yeah. And people don't like to talk about this stuff. No, but you know what? If you don't talk about it, then you carry it in the back of your head for the rest of your life. And guess what? That is absolutely no good (laughs) because that leads to all kinds of other problems that I don't have to talk about. Yeah. Yep. And so important question, Sean, so important for you guys, all of us who are clergy and future clergy, it's important to get a handle on all of this. If people are going to be asking these questions about setting up a proxy or about a living will, or if I do this or that, am I going to inherit? But so to have a handle and a sense of how to answer these questions with a good with a, with a good knowledge behind you is essential. 
the same you get before. As our numbers decrease, that's just the reality of the situation right now, more and more people are going to come to you guys with these questions. And the reality is most times in Catholic hospital, any hospital, the, the Catholic chaplain is not a priest. It's a deacon. And if we don't have a sense of how to be able to handle these questions with the knowledge of what the church teaches and how to be able to apply those principles to real world situations, you are in a real serious risk of giving somebody wrong information and being, being a real impediment to their conscience, to their ability to act properly. So it's really, this is not just theoretical, as, as Dr. Rhino is saying, as, as Ed is saying tonight, this is critical on the ground stuff. I spent, when I was in third theology, I spent the, the, my summer, my apostolate that year at Calvary Hospital. And I will tell you something. If palliative care everywhere was like that, these discussions would be almost non-existent because they would see the amazing level of what authentic Catholic pastoral and palliative care looks like. And that is, that's incredible. To be able to see what it looks like in action is, is a real gift. So it's so important was to get a handle on this and be able to um, articulate it to those who can ask questions about it. Yeah, and I, I keep that Catholic Conference book handy because it has a lot of really good answers and it has uh, the forms, it has the documents, it gives you hints on where you can call if you have a problem. Uh, having that handy for people, I think, and just for yourself uh, is really, really good. I have a quick question. Um, if you're an organ donor, this may be for Dr. Anthony, do, do you uh, shorten someone's life because of something like that? Uh, you know, there's, there's, there are suspicions that uh, there pressure put. I think there is probably pretty clearly pressure put on some on some patients and patients' families to acknowledge brain death because uh, it has there has to be brain death, right? That's the key criteria uh, before you can harvest the organs. That you can you can bring that about by declining other treatments and so forth. So I think I think this pressure. I doubt that it's as, as prevalent as people fear. Uh, I think in other countries, maybe like China, uh, it's a real serious concern. Um, I haven't heard, I haven't really, a uh, doctor could probably answer this, I'm sure it could answer this better than me. I haven't heard many stories of people feeling the pressure to, to do it for that purpose. But I, I imagine it does happen. So um, in my experience, it is, uh, you know, especially when you have like, uh, uh, trauma patients that come in and especially when they're young um, and yeah so I mean either gunshots or blunt trauma or whatever um, they come in um, they're on a ventilator you know there's like you know very little chance of them coming back um, the pressure is not necessarily to let them go but the pressure is not to you know put them on things that will damage the end organs that they that they need to use for transplant, meaning um, like pressors. You don't want to put patients on pressors because you put them on pressors, it usually damages the kidneys, it damages the heart, it damages a lot of the end organs. So, um, you know, so a lot of times, you know, and this is when I was a resident um, in Newark, which, you know, we were the only trauma center in, in, in New Jersey at the time. Um, where we would get, you know, sometimes, you know, 15 to 20 trauma hits a night. Um, and these guys would come in, you know, with, you know, these horrific injuries 
and you know they were donor you know issues the intern's job was you were working the unit it was bad enough working the unit but you worked the unit and these people would you know you know these people weren't coming back so at some point you had to go back out to the family you know at the risk of being being beaten into a coma by the family and let them know hey you know not you know i just got to let you know that uh you know your your son or your daughter or whatever is um you know is now in a vegetative state uh we don't want to put them on you know any types of pressers or this that and the other thing um would you be willing you know to you know donate you know your loved one's organs you know for donation and sometimes it would go over well and sometimes you would be you know beaten you know into a coma you know so um but you know that was the pressure the pressure was you know when these patients came in um and you knew because we know right away you know what the deal is um you know the so the pressure was not to put them on pressors or any type of medications that were going to damage those end organs that you could use for donation that was the pressure What's a what's a presser, doctor? Just because I'm not pressers are like uh, levofed, anything that would need to. So if a patient came in with um, a lot of, um, you know, so let's say you know major blood loss, and you transfuse them, and their pressure wasn't good. Now low pressures will obviously damage the end organs. So what happens is is that you know you 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 put them on medications that increase their blood pressures, like. Um, like levofed or epinephrine or whatever. Now, the the you know that's great. It'll it'll increase the blood pressure. It will increase the the perfusion to the end organs. But the issue is is that you know giving those medications also damages the end organs. And those end organs, the longer you're on them, the less viable those end organs will be for transplant. So, um, you, you know, you're basically advised that, okay, in the short term, if you've got to do this and you think you can resuscitate these people, fine, give them, you know, give them those medications. However, if it's going to be a long-term thing and these people are, you know, donor capable, then don't put them on that because then the end organs are, you know, are unusable. idea of organ transplants that's part of the semester later on in the semester we'll cover organ transplants brain death criteria um all that stuff so don't worry we'll get into that in more detail later on in the semester um i think it was all a good sense of what those things mean and what's um will be appropriate and what's what is not so i'll be covered in the semester later on great and i i have a question and i don't know father chris maybe you might jump in on this as well um, it's something that happened just today that just it just got me thinking as we were talking about all, all this kind of stuff. We have a, a one of our elderly parishioners, um, 94-year-old guy, uh, wonderful man, beautiful Catholic man. Uh, his daughter, great, great woman, leader in the church, runs our DRE program for us. And after Mass today, I knew he had taken a fall, and he's taken a couple of falls in the past, I don't know, a couple of, couple of weeks. And, um, and, and he's, he's declining. Um, and um, after Mass, I went up to her today, and I said, you know, how, how's, how's Grumps doing? That's his nickname, is Grumps. And, and, uh, and she said, oh, you know, we're, we're just at the point where we're just praying for him to go. And it's kind of looked at her, and I was like, if, I was thinking to myself, okay, what am I supposed to say to that? That, oh, I'll join with you in the prayer for him to go? 
and, and it, it just kind of threw me as we're having all this kind of discussion. And it's like, is that the right prayer to pray for him to go? Now, I mean, if I were to press her on that, I think what she would have said is clarified it and narrowed it down. Oh, he's had a good life. He's been through a lot and, you know, he's falling and, and it's hard to, you know, I, I hear that. But is that really the right perspective? It's, something like that is usually said out of frustration or, uh, um, you know, exhaustion sometimes. Caregivers, you know, can get exhausted. And it's one of the worst things that we have, that we have, is the we don't really, we don't minister enough to the caregivers, I think, and they get burned out. So, and which also then contributes to this idea of, of you know, greasing the skids a little bit. Um, you know, I think that we pray for a happy death, right? That's it's a, a devotion to St. Joseph is pray for a happy death. Um, so I think that's the prayer, uh, you know, God, Lord God, take me at your time and your, and your way, uh, so long as I'm properly prepared. And I think George, the way to respond to that also, say, while well, I'm praying for you guys and praying for, for Grumps also, leave it at that. You know, the only thing to say what it's for, just say for, pray for you. And then people will appreciate the simple offer of a prayer at that moment. And, and certainly they need your prayers, what they're going through right now. And I think, as you know, as, as Ed is saying, when it comes to the whole idea of uh, there's a frustration that's present there. I think also there is a realization that as St. Paul writes, we have here no lasting city. You know, we live in this world for the next. And if we live 90 plus years and we are in declining health and we see our parent who is suffering, who is going through difficult moments, any child, you see a parent suffer is, is horrible. So we, we pray for that because we, because we trust that there is something waiting for us when this world comes to an end. And that's a prayer that is not said to hope they'll die. It's not what, that's not what's being said here. It's a hope of them being alleviated of their suffering after a long and happy life and not wanting to remember them as as they were in their in their illness, but remember them as they were in in their health. It's funny, you know, my parents about ten years ago at my parents, I took all of our VHS tapes and put them on on DVD. My, my, my parents and we watched them every so often at different Christmas, Thanksgiving, whatever. My parents stayed to comfort for them, seeing my grandparents who Alzheimer's, cancer, died, you know, in rough ways. My parents had the comfort for them to see their parents, how they want to remember them as they were in life, as happy, as vivacious, as, you know, faithful people, not to remember them in those last days or months um, of suffering and of, and of pain and of all of those things. So the great for a happy death, is, as that saying, is devotion for sure. And and to remember, this is not, you know, again, the quote St. Paul, Paul writes, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here, which is good for us to remember that in general. But the idea is that, you know, we, we live in this world with the expectation and the happiness of the good things that are to come. And it's so important that our perspective is focused on what is true and what is right about what's coming for us, please God, um, when our life comes to an end. Father, quickly, um, I was Eucharistic minister for a nursing home in Peekskill that was, you know, one of the places people went to that did not have money. And the, it was barbaric, honestly, the 
I, I understand you want to give people the care, but uh, it was it was torturous living there for those for some of those people. The, the, the only grace was if they had dementia or something that they if their minds weren't there. But if their minds were there, it, I don't know. It was very difficult when I walked out of there to say this was a very this was a, a this was a merciful place to be. And that's part of the, uh, that's, again, as I was saying, John, if, if the palliative care was better across the board, I think these discussions, these debates wouldn't be had. When you, when you walk into a place like that and you see the, frankly, the dereliction of care and dereliction of pastoral, uh, you know, in medical assistance of people and on a human empathetic level, we say to ourselves, my God. How could anyone want to be here and, and, and is this care? Um, those are, are very, you know, uh, natural things, I think, to think. I think all of us that have walked into a place like that wonder those things. At the same time, that doesn't justify doing things that we know are not going to be morally appropriate because of how we feel about a certain situation. It's hard because, you know, as, as good people that, are, that have sympathy and empathy for people, kind of feel that compassion for them and we can't able to put ourselves in that position and say my god if i was here how do i feel about this right and that is in many ways a a criticism and a, and a proper one of end-of-life care across the board in major swaths of this country that is a reality people face i think it raises these questions about isn't it more merciful let someone die than to stay in a place like that and the answer is obviously it's a false mercy that it's saying, but it's a matter of improving the care because once we improve the care in those places, these debates, I really believe will go away. But the reality is because we see situations like that on a purely human compassion, empathetic level, we find ourselves struggling because we know what the right thing is. We know the church is teaching on it. Yet we see what is before us. And it's hard to kind of just divorce ourselves from the lived reality what we're encountering. What I, what I hope is that, uh, uh, well, I, we really need more people to give witness to good experiences at the end of life. Uh, and because most people just hear horror stories. Uh, but I'm, we're also hoping that after COVID calms down a little bit and the government can sort of get back to normal, that we can really take a very strong look at the nursing home uh, situation, the nursing home industry, uh, because we all know what happened with, with COVID and how they were putting patients back into the nursing homes and how they were neglecting the nursing homes. You know, we spend billions and billions on schools uh, and we spend very, very little actually on end of life care. So uh, hopefully as a public policy matter, that's something we can address in the long run, but yeah, we'll see. And I'd like to mention something. Um, it'll be almost 10 years soon that I lost my mom and um, like yeah, on November on November twenty second, she entered Montevideo Hospital, and at eleven thirty four on November thirtieth, she entered eternal life. Um, but I can honestly say yes. In the beginning, the the hospital was pressuring us to to make immediate um, changes. Um, my dad is still alive, and he was my mother's healthcare proxy, but he kind of relied on myself and uh, my two younger sisters. Um, but to be honest with you, at, on that last day, um, they were 
amazingly good to us. Um, they had a palliative care unit that came to visit with us. Um, and to be honest with you, at the time of her passing, it was, it was, it, I didn't think of it at the time, but now looking back on it, it was beautiful to be with her, to hold her hand, to see her take her last breath. So, you know, yes, where there's, there's horror stories, you kind of want to also know that there are the grace of a happy death, to be honest with you. Yeah. And I think too, I, um, you know, nobody goes into any kind of the healthcare professions wanting to do bad things or hurt people. I think the, the nobility of, of so many uh, nurses and doctors come through at those difficult times as well, uh, when, they, when they can uh, uh, help people and they can, you know, help people with, uh, with in, in, they know, very difficult circumstances. So, you know, certainly we want to make sure that we, we affirm that as well, the beauty and the, and the nobility of most of the, well, virtually all of the people in the health professions. Yeah, yeah I, I, I thank you for saying that because I don't think anybody understands that, um, you know, that uh, when your patient dies, there's a part of you that dies with them. And, um, you know, as much as we want to try to, as physicians, try to trivialize it and, you know, suppress it, it, uh, it never really goes away. And, um, you know, that's just one thing that I wanted to put out there. Um, as you know, nursing home, as far as nursing homes are concerned, I was, you know, I, I, I was the ENT director at, you know, two different nursing homes for over 10 years. And, you know, it depends on the nursing home, you know, and, it, and each nursing home has its, you know, different issues. Uh, some are great, some are horrible. Um, however, um, you know, in no way, shape or form, um, you know, the unfortunate thing is that some of these nursing homes are a dumping ground for, you know, families to, you know, for them to, you know, to take care of their, you know, their loved ones when they don't want to take care of them anymore. Um, and, and, and that's a problem. But um, the issue is, you know, the family or the, or the patient family or anyone uh, you know, whether you're a physician, you're a nurse, you're a respiratory therapist, I don't care what you are. Um, you're the patient advocate. So if you see something that's not right, then you need to speak up. And there are ways to do that. Um, and if you don't do it, then you're complicit. And I think that, you know, if more people knew that, then, um, you know, the care in these, in, in, you know, in these, in these chronic care facilities would, would actually be much better off. Yeah, and in fact, there's there's a uh, these ombudsmen uh, that they have that the, the state has uh, is something that really needs to be beefed up, uh, so that people do have that avenue for for complaints and for for advocating. So yeah, that's actually a very important point. You're and right. you mentioned you'd like to hear some more good stories. Would you mind if I read an email I got from a friend of mine two years ago? I just found it. Dear friends, thank you to everyone for your kind wishes, thoughts, and prayers for my mother. I visited her on Friday with my wife and our two youngest children who had not recently seen her. We were able to spend some quality time with her and share with her how special she is to all of us. When we said goodbye, I suspect that I would not see her ever again. She died that night. My sister and brother-in-law were with her. She never suffered and truly did not fear death. 
She had said to me, quote, I never thought the end of life would be this beautiful, close quote. I hope I can go out with one-tenth the grace she had. That's a pretty good story, right? That's a great story. Wow, beautiful. Yeah. That's great. Those are the stories that we want to hang on to. Yeah. Those are the stories that, you know, are, are sustaining for us. I have a little, um, kind of a, like a scrapbook of little notes that I've gotten as a priest over the course of the years. I've saved some cards here that I got from people because those are the things that when you're having a rough day, you go back to and you remember that this is why I'm doing this. And I think that um, it's important for us in the midst of talking about some heavy stuff tonight. It definitely was. But thank you, Doug, for sharing that and kind of um, reminding us of the, the beauty of people appreciating our being there and just the witness to life and the witness to dignity that that uh, letter showed us this evening. I'm holding on to that one for a long time. Yeah, definitely, you should. Yeah, very few people that do that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Most times it's the opposite. So when you get one that's good and positive, you want to kind of cherish it. You put it, put it like a, on like a gold wrapping or something because it's not that often you get them. So yeah, exactly. Cool. <laughs> Anybody else? Any other questions this evening? Hi, Father. Uh, my question is, at what point uh, do you make the decision to have the, the children or the family let go of the patient? My uh, experience was with my wife, my wife, aunt. She had bottle cancer for quite a while, almost 20 years. And she finally uh, passed on a good Friday, about 10 years ago. And the doctors were able to bring her back, but they brought her back and put her on a ventilator enough for the her children to be able to say goodbye but when the kids came back came over from overseas to say goodbye to mom they were faced with a decision whether they should pull the plug or keep it on the ventilator the doctors tried to explain to them that there wasn't going to be any quality of life that there was no brain uh, uh function no brain uh, uh, action and yet the children were not willing to to let go. Uh, and again, that was one of those tough decisions. I My faith was not the same as today. I My knowledge, my formation was not the same either. So I couldn't give out any decent advice either. And, and that's my question. Uh, in cases like that, when you know that there's not much that medicine can do for a patient, uh, what do you do? You keep it on the ventilator or... Well, I, uh, you know, at a certain point, we have to acquiesce in the inevitability of death and uh, a death from a particular cause uh, that is out of our control, you know, so. Uh, and then we have to, I think, do that if it's a treatment issue like that with a ventilator or assisted breathing, you know, you have to do this benefit burden analysis uh, of is this really helping the patient at all uh, or is it causing excessive burden? Is it going to do any good, basically? in a way, put it shortly. Uh, I really shun the idea of quality of quality of life discussions because that's very subjective. Um, and it's, um, it's, it really puts a, a stigma on people with birth, with uh, disabilities and other things. So I really, I, I, 
it makes me nervous to hear people talking about doctors, uh, especially people who don't know what the patient's life is like, to talk about quality of life. Really, I think you focus in on what is the treatment that we're doing. Uh, it's harder to stop it than it is to say, don't start it, uh, right? So, but you still have to do that basic analysis, burden benefit. Is this really gonna benefit her? Uh, or is the burden uh, too, is the burden too much? And then it's again, very fact specific, very fact specific. There'll be challenges like that, Lucas. We had a case in the parish that I was in where uh, a woman's father was very clearly the man was, was at the end of his life. And a uh, woman was limited, you know, the poor thing. And so she kept him alive using everything that would be extraordinary in, in, you know, in terms of what would be keeping him alive. I mean, this is a case where, you know, if he was taken off the, off of all the, electronic things he would have passed very peacefully and um he kept alive for literally for weeks because the, the machine to keeping him alive and it was it was it was heartbreaking for the priest because she was limited to begin with and, you know the woman's so it was hard to even get through to her like this is not your dad is not going to get better so there are going to be challenges like that but at the end of the day you have to kind of just it was, her, it was her father, my, my, my father. You kind of try to like, you know, walk with her and help her and be present to her, but you can't force anybody to do anything that um, they're not going to be able to do, you know, in the end. And those, those are difficult things. But Pope Francis talks a lot about the issue of accompaniment. And I think that for us as members of the clergy, there is one of the most important things we can do is accompany people, especially in those moments. And you know, when we go into a hospital room, when you go to a dying patient's room and the family's there and you're there as the member of the clergy representing in the church, you pray with them for sure. But sometimes simply you being with them in the room, sitting in the room, it's just that alone. The ministry of presence is um, is critical to be there. And we're gonna be in those situations that are that are upsetting, that are difficult, that are that are challenging. But we go there because they 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 want to call it Jesus, but they can't have him, so they call us. And it's incumbent upon us and our vocation as members of the clergy to be Christ for them in those moments. And that is the most important thing any of us can get from what we're talking about all this semester. That's what this is about, about us being Jesus for those we minister to. And if we, if we get a handle on that, we're going to be very effective, I think, in, in whatever case we walk into in our ministry. Sorry, guys. I have one more point or question. Maybe one of the doctors can help me with this. In my father's case, on the last day before he died, he had cancer. He's very heavily medicated. He had this moment of lucidity, and we had a 45-minute conversation, and the doctor said it's common that they don't know what it is. It's almost like a miracle. And so it almost like you're saying where you don't want to deny people those last moments of their life because a lot of the doctors said a lot of times it's almost like a grace where they're able to say goodbye. But is that something, you know, from a medical standpoint is, you know, was it just a miracle for us or is it is it a common occurrence? I had the same experience, John, with my dad the day before he died. Interesting, right? 
Anthony, any, any medical answer for that? Or? Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, the, one of the adages, you know, when, you know, you're, you're a resident is that, uh, you know, the laboratory, you know, values and, you know, the, you know, any of the mental issues always normalize before death. And, um, have I seen it before? Yeah, I have, um, do I, you know, do I, I know what it's due to? No, I don't. Um, but, you know, it does happen. And um, no, no explanation for how it happens or why it happens. Interesting. So, so it's a God incident. <laughs> Sounds I, that way, dog. I, but it's not, I've yeah. never heard that before. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. When, uh, 20 years ago, when, when Yolanda's mom was dying, she had con congestive heart failure. And when I met her, she had had a stroke years before. So I never, I could never understand what she was saying. And it was cool because they did a Sunday dinner. All the grandkids were there. They played videos and everything. And she, it's almost like she knew when it was her time was coming. She, all the kids, grandkids, one by one, they all paid the respects to, and they left. And then it was about 1130 at night on a Sunday night. And out of the clear blue, she started saying, higher, higher, higher. I had never heard her talk so clear. And five minutes later, she was gone. But it was almost like her way of, you know, letting us know that she's, she's, she's leaving this world and she's gonna be in good hands. And then that was when I heard that, it was, it definitely came from God. Yeah, the mystery and beauty of life, huh? Oh, yeah. Boy, oh, boy. Just, yeah, those are the things that aren't the intangibles that you can't kind of put a, a, a kind of words to that probably explain just what Priceless. it is to be alive and to live. Yeah. Priceless. Yeah, amen to that. I think it's also part of the fact that they're ready to go. They will to leave. They don't want to fight anymore. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Well, you're sharing tonight guys thank you for some of these kind of like personal stories it was beautiful to have this um kind of sharing tonight and to talk about some of these things and um for the rest of the semester at least as part of the semester we're going to transition now into the medical ethics uh part of it and looking at end of life issues again a little more detail on some of these things um looking at beginning of life issues organ transplants um a lot of this stuff and you know, it's, I think it's important because these discussions we had tonight are going to make this class, I think, that much that much more entertaining, that much more engaging when we're sharing things that are hopefully going to contribute to uh, to our learning about these issues and these situations. And um, certainly, Anthony, your contributions tonight, thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, hopefully, part of this uh, conversation, you go through some of these medical issues. If I say anything that's wrong, or go ahead and please correct me. Uh, if I do that. So yeah, sure. No uh, problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, all good. Uh, yeah. So, but thank you guys for, for your paying attention. Um, so I'm going to grade these papers uh, this week coming up. Uh, getting back to you via email. And the reading assignment, of course, there's all homework, right? The reading assignment is in Medicine, Christian Morality, the book we <coughs> have, page 228, 257. Um, we're going to finish up with the marriage NFP presentation with Dr. Wither next week. 
But her presentation next week is more on the medical aspects of some of this stuff. So it actually dovetails nicely with going into medical ethics now as part of the semester. Uh, thank you, Ed, so much for a great presentation tonight. It was so informative, and, and I just want to thank you um, for being here tonight and giving us this great presentation. Thank, thank you, Ed, very much. Always an honor to speak to the deacons. Future deacon. Okay. Good night, everybody. Good night, guys. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you. Bye bye. Or not, right?